0: The media landscape in America is busted. Americans are on to the omissions, the half-truths, and the outright lies being propagated against we, the people. Your host, Tom Harris, will bring you the other side of the story.
1: University of Florida linguist M.J. Hardman tells us in Language and War, written in 2002, that, quote, Language is inseparable from humanity and follows us in all our works. Language is the instrument with which we form thought and feeling, mood, aspiration, will, and action. The instrument by whose means we influence and are influenced. It is not surprising then that language has always been a crucially important weapon of war. Delivered with convincing rhetorical flair, language has driven ordinary citizens to heroic acts of self-sacrifice while pushing others to unspeakable acts of barbarism. And now language tricks are being used to justify the unjustifiable in the increasingly intensive war of words over global warming. Climate change is real, we must stop climate change, all scientists agree. These are phrases used by environmental alarmists, politicians, and industrialists to scare the public into supporting multi-billion dollar climate schemes that enrich a few at the cost of many. So to discuss this and how we have actually changed language and how the conservatives especially have been kind of suckered into this. I have a guest, Joseph Benamy, who's an expert in these kinds of things, in, in language, etc. He's a former naval officer, a former policy aide to then Prime Minister Stephen Hart. Harper, Prime Minister of Canada. Joseph is a respected TV and radio commentator and public speaker, offering insights on culture, politics, and current affairs from a conservative perspective. He's been president of the Arthur Meehan Institute for Public Affairs, executive director of the Institute for Canadian Values, and director of government relations and diplomatic affairs for the Jewish Advocacy
0: Group Bene
1: and also various other organizations that I won't list. So welcome to the show, Joseph.
0: Thanks. Glad to be on, uh, Tom. Yeah. You well, forgot my podcast, Tom.
1: Oh, right. What's the URL for your podcast?
0: W.Joseph all one word without the hyphen.com.
1: Okay. B-E-N-A-M-I is the end of that with no right. hyphen. Dot and com. no hyphen. Okay, good. I'll put that under the podcast when it goes up on Monday. One of the things I find really unfortunate, in fact, I just wrote an article about how conservatives are now actually uh, promoting the climate hoax. They're actually, you know, throwing fuel on the fire instead of, you know, trying to put the fire out. They're actually helping the fire uh, become worse. And, you know, it strikes me that this is totally counterproductive when you have people like Nikki Haley, who's a c- candidate for the GOP nomination for president in the United States. She's a former U.S. ambassador into to, uh, to the U.N. She said, is climate change real? Yes, it is. We need to start telling China and India that they have to lower their emissions. And of course, others are calling it a carbon footprint, like Senator uh, Tim Scott, who's also going for president. And you see this from, from uh, Pierre Polyev. He told the conservative convention on September 8th. And here's the quote we will. And I'd love to hear what you think about this, Joseph, because I think they're just buying into the climate scare with their use of language. Here's what Pierre Polyev said. We will massively increase Canadian production of emissions free energy by green lighting, green projects. <laughs> and he talks about having carbon capture and storage and all that stuff. So, I mean, What's going on? Do they not realize that they're helping the climate scare their enemies by using this language?
0: I think that the real problem insofar as the Conservative Party is concerned, and indeed uh, opponents of the climate alarmism who are involved in the political, the democratic process, uh, is that for the most part, certainly here in Canada, Tom, and also in Europe, not so much in the United States, and you know we can get to that into that in just a minute, but they're they're afraid they're afraid that if they take a strong stand against the alarmism, for instance, calling it a hoax, that they're going to suffer electorally, and to a degree, I, I'm sympathetic with that point of view because it's probably true, but it's a self made problem it's inflicted they inflicted on themselves by having gone so long refusing to take a a strong stand so in a country like canada if if the conservatives were now to say this is a hoax and and we're we're just not buying into it uh you know there are going to be a lot of voters out there that are going to be scratching their heads because they've staked out a position for so long that uh that affirms the climate scare, albeit in perhaps somewhat less alarmist language. Now, of course, the problem is uh, uh, that if you're not taking a strong stand, if you're not positioning yourself in clearly in opposition to the alarmist narrative, then, you know, you're you're basically affirming, as I said, uh, what what the alarmists are saying. And this is what's different about what's going on in the United States today. Although there is a certain amount of the same problem within small-c conservative ranks, you're going to come across Republicans, as you mentioned, uh, in the debates for the uh, GOP uh, primary, uh, Nikki Haley and others, talking about climate change and what we should be doing about it. Uh, So it exists in the United States, but to a far less degree. And At least you have political leaders, key political leaders, who are prepared to stand up and say, no, this isn't true. Uh, and the irony is if you if you do that, then you're going to have followers. This is what's missing in this country. What's missing in this country is uh, uh, a political leader that's willing to take a stand to lead the opposition. and and when you when you lead, people will follow because there are a lot of people out there that they're sitting on the fence. They don't mm-hmm. know. I look. I'm not a scientist. I, I consider myself to be an educated person. I look at the evidence. I hear the arguments, and to me, they don't. They're not compelling. I, hmm. I see real flaws based on my own education. Uh, but I'm not a scientist, so there's got to be a lot of people out there who don't think about this subject that much. But when they do think about it, the only thing they're hearing is the alarmist side of the argument, including coming from the people that you would think would be opposed to the alarmist agenda, which would be mm-hmm. conservatives. So if you only hear one side of the story, uh, Tom, then, you know, it's it's only natural that you're going to accept it as truth.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it's interesting, you and I have often discussed this paper about um, where is the... Like, what is the major driver for public opinion on climate change? And of course, that was a paper put out by researchers from McGill University, Drexel University and Ohio State. And they were saying that it's not the media, it's not the science. It's actually the stated opinions of the elite in society and in particular the politicians. And they gave some really interesting examples, you might recall, that when John McCain, a Republican, was on the side of climate alarmism and there was very little pushback in the Republican Party. So you had both parties agreeing with it and public support was very high for taking action to supposedly stop climate change. But then in later administrations, when we had trump and other people we found of course that there was far greater public support for the idea that we're not causing dangerous climate change largely because people like trump were saying that so i mean don't you think the conservative strategists in canada have kind of got the horse in the cart backwards they seem to think they can only move over to new positions on this when public opinion changes but they are the driver of public opinion to a considerable extent
0: Right. And I I call what you've just described the the communications feedback loop when it comes to politics. OK, you 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 take a position that you don't necessarily believe in, but you feel you have to take this position because it's electorally to your advantage. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then by taking that position and you justify taking that position, I should say, based on the fact that public opinion is a certain way. But by taking the position you're taking you are in fact driving the very public opinion that you are citing as the reason for taking it yeah <laughs> so you you're it, it's like a feedback loop uh it, and, and it's it the, the the challenge the problem facing conservative-minded politicians okay uh, who do not believe in man-made climate change who actually are following the sound science on this subject. Okay, they are the 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 difficulty that they have in presenting their case to the voting public is entirely self-inflicted, and regrettably, people have become so entrenched because they've only been hearing one side of the story in places like here in Canada for so long. That it's going to it's it's going to be extraordinarily difficult to break that that sort of heuristic. But here's the problem: this is the fly in the ointment. Talk, mm-hmm. Is that if you get elected, are you going to follow through with your promises that you have made that you don't actually believe in, and 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 have policies that are aligned with the alarmist agenda? Are you going to do that? Or are you going to actually follow the science and thumb your nose at th- those policies and 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 do something that's sound and so, like, that scientifically valid in which case you run you know the, you run the, the the danger of basically be, call, be called flip-floppers breaking your mm-hmm. promises and you give the climate alarmists a whole new narrative the conservatives can't be trusted on this subject. And because yeah. for so long the public has been hearing only one side of the story, that is a narrative that probably would stick.
1: Yeah, and it would stick justifiably, too. I mean, sure. if making promises before being elected and then they don't do it, then, yeah, that's that's bad news. And, and, you know, one of the things, Joseph, I find especially annoying is the way the Conservatives have yielded to the propagandic language. And, you know, it's interesting, there's something on Google Um, that's called Ngrams, N-G-R-A-M-S. And you can actually do a search. And I just wrote an article about this actually for America Out Loud. It'll be actually on the web by the time this becomes a podcast. So I'll include a link to it. And what I included in the article was use of certain terms since the year 2000. And one of them, for example, two of them I have actually plotted here, Ngrams. You go to Ngram Viewer under Google Books is Climate Crisis, Climate Emergency. Both of those have risen uh, hugely, especially in the case of the climate crisis. The other one is carbon pollution, you know, and that has just skyrocketed while the use of the word carbon dioxide, which is the proper term, has dropped. So it would seem to me that even timid conservatives should be able to stop using the language of the alarmist. In, In other words, instead of calling it carbon emissions or carbon pollution, call it carbon dioxide, because some people, of course, will remember their grade five science and know that carbon dioxide is not pollution, but instead they reinforce it. So these graphs that people can look up, as I say, I'll link to it under the podcast, these graphs with the skyrocketing use of terms like climate change is real, you know, carbon pollution, that's actually being augmented by the conservatives themselves. So surely an easy approach for a timid conservative politician is to just
0: quietly start changing their language. Right. And you know the 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 funny thing is there there is such a thing as carbon pollution. Uh, yeah. And and it's not carbon dioxide. So and and, and here's it's the shut. thing whether it's you're <laughs> whether shut. you're in whether you're in the United States or you're you're in Canada the fact is that in this part of the world we're actually very, very good about reducing and uh, and and ultimately, if possible, eliminating or certainly eliminating to the greatest extent possible carbon pollution. Um, it, you know, and when it's, it's funny, how often do you see pictures of 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 pollution or alleged pollution uh, in the in the mainstream media, where you see a smokestack from a particular manufacturing process? And you see all of this white stuff billowing out of the smokestack, okay. But in reality, that's that's not pollution.
1: It's in reality,
0: it's 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 water vapor, yeah. Okay, and but they show these clouds coming out of the stuff, and then people think, Oh, oh my god, look at the pollution that this particular manufacturer is producing, but he's not. In fact, in fact, and and, and, and I know a thing or two about this because it, I used to be. I used to work in this industry, in in, in the whole combustion, uh, oil and gas combustion industry, in, in commercial and industrial use, and and years ago, years ago, the government uh, passed regulations requiring manufacturers to reduce their carbon pollution. Okay, uh, which was done through various different things. That was uh, me- mechanisms that were adopted to remove uh, carbon pollutants, particulates, etc., from the emissions that were being dumped into the atmosphere for generations. So there is such a thing. I mean, what they do is called scrubbing. You scrub the the emissions, uh, and you and you remove. Not only do you remove the the carbon particulates and other particulates, but you also um, uh, recycle a lot of the heat energy so this is a normal thing that manufacturers do people in heavy industry do these days Mm -hmm. uh, and because it makes economic sense for them to do it it's not just that it's a regulatory requirement so when it comes to Canada and the United States we are world leaders world class fantastic the job that that we've done at reducing carbon pollution yeah but, but we haven't figured out how to eliminate carbon dioxide. <laughs> yeah, not, but that's not okay, carbon. because it's not a pollution.
1: Yeah. We yeah, want
0: yeah. carbon dioxide in
1: our atmosphere. Uh-huh. Well, you laugh, Joseph. When Paul Martin was uh, Prime Minister of Canada... They decided they were going to put carbon dioxide on the list of toxic substances under CEPa, Canadian Environmental Protection Act. And it's interesting because they had things on the list of toxic substances like PCBs and mercury and, you know, real pollutants. And then they had carbon dioxide and they had listed beside it. This is not a toxic substance. In their list of toxic substances, so Stephen Harper went on and on about how this was completely crazy to add it to a list of toxic substances, with the note that it's not a toxic substance. But when they became, when he became prime minister, they didn't take it off the list. And uh, so, what what happened there? Do you think?
0: I I, I can't say. Um, I, I in fact, to be honest with you, Tom. What you've just related i i wasn't even aware of that particular thing yeah. so um I all i could do is just chalk that up to you know the kinds of things that slip through the cracks when you're in government you would mm-hmm. think that somebody would have paid attention to it but nobody did but mm-hmm. of course on on its surface at face value the argument that carbon dioxide is toxic uh, is it, it's ridiculous and, you know, I, I I don't like people talking about, well, it's plant food. Well, that it's true, it's plant food. But more importantly, um, you and I breathe in carbon dioxide all the time because it's carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. If it was toxic, uh, we would be suffering from negative effects of breathing in carbon dioxide. More importantly, we breathe out carbon dioxide. Yeah. So the very fact that we're breathing it out means that it's in our bodies Uh, and so it's just it's nonsensical to say that it's toxic uh and and and, at face value but of course you know i i know i I just criticize people who say it's plant food but it is what what can i say Um, and and, you know i was the lifeguard and we had to
1: practice in those days mouth-to-mouth artificial respiration (laughs) You, you didn't want to get a guy to have to practice on but regardless um we would be breathing into them high concentration of CO2, much higher than in the in the, in the atmosphere. And poisoning them. Uh, yeah. It would save their lives. Allegedly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but but you know, one of the questions I wonder is are the people writing the speeches for the politicians truly ignorant? Okay. Or are they just doing what they think will sort of get them through the day without being criticized by
0: environmentalists? I I think I think it's a combination of three things i think first of all there's just plain ignorance i think the second thing is what you is also what you say about just writing because you you just want to uh, uh write what you think you're going to be able to pa- or, uh, sell to the public and then i think that there are true believers um uh, i i think that there are people in, in the policy ranks of the conservative party who truly believe uh, that uh, uh, in man-made global warming and they and climate change and of course you know we don't talk about global warming anymore because it we're not we're not we're not seeing global warming notwithstanding you know what uh, what people have been talking about all summer about the extreme heat etc i mean listen on the topic of extreme heat tom uh here we are in, in ottawa canada's national capital and in eastern ontario which would include Toronto, the Golden Horseshoe around uh, uh, Lake Ontario. Um, we actually, in the month of August of 2023, nowhere in that geographical area did we reach the temperature of 30 degrees Celsius. Nowhere. Wow. Uh-huh. And, and and so, in fact, the, the average high temperature, and I know I, I hate using averages when it comes to temperature, but why not? The other side is doing it. So the average um, high temperature in that region, which again includes Ottawa, includes Toronto and metropolitan Toronto, the the GTA, um, was somewhere around 28 degrees. That was a record, since we've been keeping records, for the coldest average high temperature for the month of August. Jeez, and you don't hear that in the press of course no of course not now yeah. i'm not citing those numbers as proof of anything because mm-hmm. i don't believe you can prove anything or disprove citing average temperatures but it, it it gives you at least a taste of what we're dealing with here when mm-hmm. when the secretary general of the united nations said we're 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 moving out of the era of global warming and we're moving into the era of global boiling <laughs> all I could think of was, well, you're not living in Ottawa. Yeah. That's yeah. for darn sure.
1: Or in um, the United States. I mean, if you look at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration database, they keep track of all extreme weather records on a statewide basis for every state in the union. And what you find is that in the whole of the 20... 20- the 2020s, you know, 2020, 2021, 22, 23, there were only records set in Oregon and I believe it was Washington State for the highest temperature. There were no high temperature records set in the whole of 2022 and none so far are there from 2023. And so you say, well, okay, so the US and Canada are among the best sort of databases in the world for extreme weather records and, and temperature accuracy. And there's no records being set. So where are these records being set that pull this so-called global average up? It must be in countries that really don't
0: have very good records. <laughs> well, here's here's the thing, um, is that when it gets hot and when it gets very hot, and, you know, using the Celsius here in, in Ottawa, let's say 31, 32 degrees, 33 degrees, for us in this region, that's pretty hot. So if, if you're constantly hearing this narrative about global warming and the w- world is burning, um, you know, sizzling temperatures, et cetera, and you reach 32 degrees, which is, which is unusual, but it doesn't fall into the category quite of rare. It happens in the summertime here from time to time that we'll get periods that's, that are extremely hot and we'll reach those kinds of temperatures. That's normal it's always been that way it's in in my lifetime experience uh and uh, but but having heard about all of these problems that the world is experiencing then confirmation bias kicks in and confirmation bias is a well known psychological uh response uh and uh, heavily researched psychologists will all explain this is like you, you don't even have to learn about this in university. You know, if, you're, if you take a basic psychology course in, in, in high school, if they offer them, you learn about confirmation bias. And so what happens is because you keep on hearing this and then you experience hot weather, you immediately attribute to the hot weather to the reasons that you've been hearing. And you think yeah. this is evidence. Yeah. Here it is. Yeah. There it is. It's evidence. Yeah
1: got to um, go for Bob. a break we've got to go for a break I want to continue sure. that after the break though because this idea of confirmation bias is extremely important for people to understand if the data is not actually supporting the narrative so we're talking with Joseph Benamy a former naval officer and he was a policy aide to our Prime Minister Stephen Harper he was the director of government relations and diplomatic affairs for B'nai Brith the Jewish advocacy group so stay tuned we'll be right back after the break. If you're enjoying this episode, we ask that you donate to the International Climate Science Coalition, or ICSC, at icsc-climate.com to help us pay for the show. We get about 50,000 listeners per program, so it's certainly worth continuing. Please visit icsc-climate.com and click on the red Donate button in the upper right-hand corner of the homepage. Once again, that's icsc-climate.com. Help us bring our program, the other side of the story, to thousands more. For 25 years, Global Healing has proudly produced the highest quality supplements and cleansing programs that are rooted in nature and backed by science. Get 15% off all of our products using code OUTLOUD. Global Healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally.
2: This is Jodi O'Malley with Nurses Out Loud. Did you know our body is made up of trillions of cells and inside each cell, redox signaling molecules are produced. These molecules hold a sacred place in chemistry because as we age, the vital communication of our immune system becomes less efficient. For the first time ever, ASEA brings you the power of these molecules in a convenient and potent form to provide your body with the essential support it needs to thrive. Ever since I toured their facility, I take two ounces in the morning and evening, and my vitality and energy has been restored at a time I needed it the most. Go to americaoutloud.shop and get your exclusive 15% discount by using the code OUTLOUD. World-class care from doctors you can trust, all from the comfort of your home. That is One Wellness. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company launched the One Wellness membership to provide free monthly supplements and unlimited telemedicine access with doctors that share your values. Be a part of a revolutionary new healthcare system that puts your health and well being above the interests of Big Pharma's bottom line. It's the way healthcare should be. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first month of One Wellness. How can you improve your odds of staying healthy? The answer is stay healthy with Cofix Rx. Who's got time for a cold, strep, a flu, HRV, RSV, or COVID anyhow? Cofix has some great news. Besides being featured as a top five product in the drugstore news, we completed the protocol that you've heard Dr. McCullough talk about. CoFixRx is already famous for a powerful virus-hostile nasal solution, and now we have a throat spray, too. Crush those nasty germs before they become a problem. With known antiviral support ingredients like povidone iodine, xylitol, and vitamin D3, you can feel a little safer. For a limited time, when you add the new Cofix RX throat spray to your order, You'll receive 25% off the entire purchase. Just click the Cofix RX banner on the America Out Loud website or store. Be sure to use promo code OUTLOUD25 at checkout. Don't forget, OUTLOUD25 at checkout.
1: With the rise of independent media, we are now AmericaOutLoud.news. I'm back with communications expert Joseph Benamy. Okay? He was a former policy aide to our former prime minister, Stephen Harper. Joseph, we were talking about confirmation bias. And, you know, it strikes me that if a tornado hit Oklahoma 100 years ago, there's a good chance nobody saw it, that, that nobody told anybody about it because nobody saw it and the media wouldn't know about it. But nowadays, when it hits Oklahoma, the population is much denser And you get a lot of people with cell phones, and suddenly we're hearing about it. So surely that's part of the reason that people think there's an increase in extreme
0: weather. Uh, Yeah, that is exactly what confirmation bias is. Look, uh, again, using, let's say, eastern Ontario as an example, we experience and always have experienced dozens of tornadoes every summer, spring, summer, fall tornadoes are not a new thing but most tornadoes you don't hear about for starters because tornadoes generally touch down it's a large geographical area so where do they touch down they touch down in a forest somewhere or they touch down in an empty field there's no damage they're minor Um, you know they they stir up a little bit of dust maybe there's some trees that are felled in a small limited geographical area which is the way tornadoes work but nobody hears about them One tornado touches down in the city of Ottawa, people hear about it. Mm -hmm. 30, 40 years ago, it was a disaster. Mm -hmm. Today, it's not just a disaster, but it's evidence of climate change. But only because you've heard about climate change. And so you automatically attribute what you've experienced outside of the ordinary to the reasons that you're hearing over and over repeated in the mainstream media. Mm -hmm. And that's what confirmation bias is and And it's it's not just it's not just that. it's even worse because a confirmation bias will will act in the way that you will look for and notice what wasn't registering in your consciousness before. Mm-hmm. But now that you're aware and you're being told about this climate change, you're going to start to notice things that you would never have noticed as being out of the ordinary before. And when you notice them, you'll attribute them to, in this case, climate change. Mm -hmm. Tell me, is
1: this an example of confirmation
0: bias? I've never thought
1: of myself as a person that would wear pink, okay? But one of our communications experts was saying, you know, you can get pink as a dress shirt and have a silver tie, and it can look really nice, and it gives you some variety when you're filming your climate change minutes. And so I wondered, are men wearing pink nowadays? And I suddenly start noticing, yeah, oh, look at that guy, that guy. So, I mean, I never noticed pink shirts before on men, but now I'm noticing them everywhere.
0: Is that confirmation bias? Uh, absolutely. That is a perfect example of confirmation bias. It's on your mind. And once it's on your mind, for where whatever the source is, you're going to start to notice it much mm-hmm. more than you did before. And that that is is a perfect example of confirmation bias. Yeah.
1: Now, I'd like to get back to this business of linguistic choices, okay? Um, I was actually in a long debate, so to speak, with Bing AI. And people can check out Bing AI, artificial intelligence. It's very interesting. You go to bing.com and you get a search window like Google and DuckDuck. And you put in your search term, you know, like I put in um, language of war. Click search. And it'll come up with various text uh, answers to your question. But there's a little button called chat. And you can click on chat and get into an actual dialogue with a GPT-4 version of artificial intelligence. And if you ask the questions orally, it's kind of fun because it gives you the answers back. So I asked the AI, I said, um, is language important in the climate debate? And AI came back to me and said, and I'll quote, Language plays a crucial role in the climate debate as it can shape how people think, feel, act about this issue. Language can also reveal how people position themselves and others in relation to the issue, as well as what values and goals they pursue. Therefore, it's important to be aware of the linguistic choices and strategies that are used in different genres and contexts, as well as their potential effects and implications. So I then said, oh, so uh, are there scientists, social scientists, doing research into the impact of language on the climate debate? AI came back and gave me a big list of all these people. I said, these people all appear to be promoting the climate issue, the climate scare. Are there people who oppose the climate scare who are researching the impact of language on the, um, on the climate issue? And the system, it couldn't find any. So I said, well, and this is the funny part, Joseph. It shows how the Bing AI is not just an information source. It's also a bit of a propaganda source. I said, well, if you were advising somebody opposing the climate scare, would you advise them to study the impact of language? And the Bing AI came back to me, and this is going to be in my article next week. And it said, no, 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 I wouldn't encourage them to study the impact of language. I would encourage them to look at the science and change their point of view. <laughs> so it's quite funny that the big AI took the opportunity to sermonize a bit. And it. it so, I, I mean, basically, it showed that the left take language choice very, very seriously. I mean, literally, there is an army of social scientists out there who are studying how to promote alarm, how to promote action through the choice of words. But there's nobody as far as being AI could concern, could see, and, and I've asked lots of people about this, aside from people like you, there's nobody researching the impact of language on the opposition to climate change issue. And do you think that's partly because social scientists in universities
0: are almost universally left-wing? Oh, I think that that has to be a factor for sure. Uh, and And the other side is... You know, all of the research that's being done for this topic that's being used to justify using particular language to promote the climate uh, alarmist position, all of that research is relevant to those of us who are opposed to that position. Mm-hmm. So if you're aware of the language problem, you can try to to, to deal with it. But it's a great challenge because because people... It's it, there is a psycho another psychological sort of issue involved here, and that is that for whatever reason, Tom, people like to see themselves as being the victims of something, uh, and it, you know, it could be the victims of nature, it could be the victims of crime, it could be whatever. There's this there's some innate need amongst people. To to be experiencing some sort of crisis, and if there's a crisis that's passed and you haven't been through it, it yourself, is. you know you you'll you'll do it almost like by osmosis. Okay, uh, there. I don't understand it entirely. There isn't a lot of research on this area in this area, but you're really that's really, you know, you're trying to convince people that they're not in a crisis. And that's mm-hmm. an extraordinarily difficult thing to do. What because, about convincing, what about
1: convincing them they're in an energy crisis when they well, point to things like Texas?
0: Well, I I would I would certainly you know I would certainly do that. I think that there's there's room for um, anti climate alarmism. I'm trying to think of the right way to phrase this because I have, actually haven't articulated it before but there's probably room for a a a uh, argument that we're in the midst of a crisis already mm-hmm. but the crisis the crisis is is an economic and energy crisis that we're on the verge of if not fully immersed in as a consequence of the policies that are being adopted to chase after to to, to react to this phantom crisis yeah. of of, of and, and so you know you really have to you have to play up um uh and repeat over and over and over again uh and and use harsh extreme language if you want to call it that yeah like you don't talk like... about the 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 disaster uh in uh, uh in Texas that, that Texans experienced.
1: Mm -hmm. And I Uh, guess you use the words of the alarmists against them that, you know, it's interesting. In 2019, the word of the year found by dictionary.com was existential. And of course, that they said this was because of the constant use of existential threat under the climate issue. I mean, it sounds to me like what conservatives should start to do is say there's an existential energy threat you know so up to 700 people died in texas and this is going to repeat across the nation over and over and over and over as right. long as the climate here is is driving our energy choices
0: right and it and it, i mean the, pro- the magnitude of the problem is 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 uh, really grave because now you really are up against now uh, there's a practical issue and that is who's going to help you transmit that language now of course you want conservative leaders to talk honestly and brutally honestly about what's happening right now with the whole climate change, frankly, the climate change lie, Mm -hmm. the man-made climate change lie, let's call it that. Okay. Uh, You want them to talk this way and I would advocate that they talk this way. I would certainly recommend it, but there is a limited opportunity for them to get that message out into the public because a lot of places simply won't cover them. And Mm -hmm. it used to be that if you use that kind of language, you would get a lot of coverage from the mainstream media because they would be opposed to you and they'd Mm -hmm. be holding you up as an example, saying, look at this Neanderthal right-wing, um, uh, climate whenever, change denier. Denier. <laughs> climate, <laughs> climate change denier. That's it. Um, and you would get coverage that way. But now, what's happening is you're not giving in many cases you're not getting covered at all, mm-hmm. unless you're repeating the narrative. And you know this brings me back to um, uh, what uh, Alan Bloom used to say about uh, about uh, the most successful tyrannies. Being not the ones that use coercion to, to to force a particular point of view, but rather the ones that uh, succeed in eliminating the knowledge of any other possible point of view. I'm paraphrasing, well, of course, but yeah, that's 1984. <laughs> it, well, it's 1984. Well, Alan Bloom wrote this in in a wonderful book, heavy reading, but a wonderful book. I highly recommend it. It's oh. um, uh, is is uh, the closing of the American mind? Oh, okay. Yeah, he wrote it uh, before the turn of the century. Interestingly mm-hmm. enough, and and didn't discuss climate change at all. <laughs> mm-hmm. But but it's it's uh, but he does talk about problems in the education system, uh, and and the fact that universities are not really providing people with uh, a full range of knowledge on on various issues. They're only providing one point of view. And as a consequence, people are assuming that that's the only correct point of view.
1: Yeah. Um, I taught a course at Carleton University for four semesters. I was doing it initially because the professor was on sabbatical and they asked me to do it. And it was climate change, a geologic perspective. And of course, geologists know that climate change has been far more severe in the past, that we're near one of the lowest levels of CO2 in Earth's history, we're at one of the coldest points in Earth's history. They know that. Of course, that's why they're never interviewed by media. But it was it was interesting because I had a lot of students, 1,500 students in total over that period, and many of them came up to me or emailed me saying, wow, this is incredible. We've not heard any of this stuff in our schooling before. And, and I think surely that's the problem is that our schools have been entirely hijacked by the climate lobby.
0: Sure. And, Tom, you know, all you can do is continue to present the facts and hammer them over and over again. Here's here's a couple of things that perhaps your listeners aren't aware of, okay? Even the people who are on our side on this. Uh, talking about Canada, and we were talking about tornadoes before. So in July 31st, 1987, 1987, there was an F4 tornado that touched down in, uh, in sorry in Edmonton, in okay. Alberta, the capital city of Alberta. That was in 1987. Twenty seven people died. Wow. This the the tornado came along with 12 inches, that's 30 centimeters of rain. 332 million dollars in damages. Another 300 people. Uh, uh, um the 300 people were injured that was in 1987 in Edmonton
1: almost 40 years ago <laughs>
0: yeah in May 31st 1985 Barrie Ontario F4 tornado eight fatalities 155 people injured 150 million dollars by the way these are in 1985 1987 dollars 150 million dollars worth of damage 600 homes were were badly damaged and of those a third of them were rendered uninhabitable. Mm, now wow. you look at that and nobody at that time was talking about how this was evidence of anything mm-hmm. except you know fate um you know whatever okay uh and uh, this is what insurance companies used to write into their policies act of god. And mm. now it's- uh, man. <laughs> now it's active man, right? Uh, and uh, but the, so so when you when you talk about tornadoes, and you talk about what we've experienced here in Ottawa, it's just it, it's there there. It, it doesn't even come. It doesn't even scratch the surface of what major Canadian cities have experienced in the past.
1: Mm-hmm. And yet and we have well the mayor, before, we have the mayor of Gatineau just across the river saying that the tornadoes from a couple of years ago were caused by climate change. And it's now used as an example in the Ottawa write-ups, the literature and stuff, when they're supporting their climate change master plan, along with flooding, which again is not caused by climate change. It's caused by in- inadequate management of, of the rainoff, off, the, the runoff from the snow. Um, those are all now used as, as examples of climate change to substantiate their policy. So I had a kind of a, a bit of a nefarious question here. When you're looking at the Conservative Party of Canada, and you can say pass on this question if you want, and we'll take it out of the interview. But I wonder, are for Conservative policy of the Conservative Party of Canada MPs who know that the climate scare is a hoax, but they continue to say it because their legislative assistants and their other interior experts are telling them, "Oh, we have to say this and that." Do those people who are telling them that, are they doing it simply because they're concerned about their future in public relations and they may not get hired by a PR firm? And so they push their MPs to say things that are generally on the left of the spectrum, even if they're conservatives. Or do these L.A.s actually believe in the climate scare? I mean, what's the reason why they're pushing their MPs to say what actually is in their against their interest?
0: Right. Well, Tom, I'm not going to take a pass. I'll answer the question. The question, the answer is, regrettably, I don't know. Uh, it's, it's entirely possible. It's entirely plausible that some of them are concerned about their higher ability, um, uh, employability later on when they are no longer working on the Hill. Uh, and of course, this is not just a problem when it comes to climate change. But it's a problem right across the board when it comes to the whole left-wing policy agenda uh, is that if you, if you take a more conservative uh, view of many issues, you find yourself ostracized. You find yourself, frankly, not being able to be um, uh, hired. Mm, yeah. Uh, and it's, it's, it's a real problem because it's Mark, it's it's a kind Mark, of ideological tyranny without the guns.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Mark Morano who works out of Washington DC does climatedepot.com that's really excellent people should look it up. He says that the trouble is if you have staffers pushing pushing a truly conservative agenda they're not invited to all the cool parties around the city you know they're they're just ostracized from the community. And so a lot of them you know who don't have necessarily a, strong opinion just simply go with what's politically correct. And and from that point of view, I think that the inner brass, the, you know, the inner workings of these political parties are often working against the interest of the political parties because uh, you know, they're not supporting what supposedly is the baseline idealism of the political party. So I mean, you could say from that point of view that many of the advisors within the conservative party of canada are actually traitors to the conservative party
0: of canada <laughs> well except except you have to remember tom that political parties exist for one reason well for two reasons they they exist to get people elected mm-hmm. uh and once they're elected they exist to get them reelected uh mm-hmm. and so the, the the pressure is is not on delivering good policy it's on delivering policy and articulating policy positions that are sellable to the maximum number of people. So, mm-hmm. uh, while I, I I hear the argument that you're making, uh, I I fear that you have a far too generous opinion of of <laughs> the of, of what political parties are all about. And I say that as somebody who has spent years in the political field. Uh, and I, I don't intend. I, I my intention here is not to. Um, uh, it, it dare be derogatory or anything like that. Uh, I just think that's a fact. Um, mm-hmm. I I I believe that that you if you want to move political parties, um, uh, one of the key things that you have to be involved in, and there are a, a multitude of different things. But uh, in this country, what we need is we need uh, uh, more uh, and better and stronger think tanks. Um, uh, we need better organized advocacy groups. Uh, and uh, uh, and and we need an alternative media that we certainly don't have today. And for whatever reason, I, and I can't put my finger on it, uh, but it's it's the reality that here in Canada, um, conservative-minded people are are just very reluctant to roll up their sleeves and get involved in building and su- most importantly supporting those kinds of, of of organizations that can have a positive impact on on uh working with the political parties and and then supporting the messaging of political parties uh when it comes to controversial things like like this you know tom i i just want to take a second also to to point out something really interesting here that's happened in canada over the past few months um uh, and it happened sort of around the wildfires that everybody was claiming that the, these wildfires were being caused, they were evidence of climate change, they were caused by climate change, et cetera. And certainly that was what the mainstream media was reporting on. Many politicians, uh, both north and south of the border, were just repeating that narrative. But while all of that was going on, the federal government was creating a department, an office, to examine extreme events like wildfires, tornadoes, floods, to determine whether or not they were indeed related to climate change now ah. if 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 the science was settled and, and this may be good news i guess because it just it's a demonstration that there are actually people who actually are thinking a little bit about this okay but if the science was actually settled and if indeed it was pro- proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that wildfires uh, were um caused or exacerbated by uh, man-made climate change then we certainly wouldn't need a department to investigate and to study uh, uh, this particular problem. So I, I just found it to be very ironic that yeah, while yeah, the prime sure. minister was while the prime minister was running around saying that this was the co- that climate change was was causing these fires, his own government was setting up uh, a team that had not made that determination yet and was put, being put in place to make the determination one way or the other. Yeah, wow. That's
1: awesome. That's really encouraging, actually. And I'll I'll look that up um, and find out what that group's called because that's a great example to use when people say the science is settled. Now, okay, then why did a liberal government set up a group to determine if there's a relationship? You know, we only have a two or three minutes left. I'd sure. like to leave people with a little bit of a to-do list. For people who are not as brave as... Mr. Ramaswamy, who, of course, is a candidate for president, a candidate for the GOP representative, who called it a hoax. He said climate change is a hoax. He said it three times. And he said that, in fact, it's climate change policy that is the big problem, not the actual climate Mm -hmm. change. For people who are perhaps a little afraid or uncomfortable with saying that from a job security point of view, it strikes me that one thing they can do is stop using the language of the extremists. Okay, stop calling it a climate emergency. Stop calling it carbon pollution. That sounds to me like an
0: easy first step. Wouldn't you agree? I agree 100%. Mm-hmm. And, and okay. I, I would stop using terms like carbon footprint. You know, mm-hmm. maybe people don't realize this, but all organic life on this planet is carbon-based. Mm-hmm. So, so the very fact that I take a step anywhere, uh, that's my carbon footprint. Yeah, yeah. And, and really the net
1: zero thing as well. I mean, I can remember there were ads on, on the radio, CFRA, in which they had ads for zero BMI. And I thought, okay, yeah, that would be like dead. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, you can lose weight if you're shooting for zero BMI. You can kill yourself. So, I mean, net well, this zero.
0: Is, this is why they use the term net. Mm-hmm. They use the term net because it's not really zero. It's a yeah. scam.
1: But the environmentalists want it to be zero. They want to have no CO2 emissions, which, of course, means the end of humanity, basically.
0: But they're very careful about the language in this, okay? Mm -hmm. They don't talk about zero emissions. They talk about zero net emissions or net zero. And the government talks about that as well. But, But I can have net zero emissions in everything I do as long as I'm counterbalancing it somehow. So I don't actually have to change. Anything I do,
1: yeah, it's, and the other thing. Well, the other thing is this carbon sequestration; they call it. Of course, what it's doing is it's pumping carbon dioxide underground. The conservatives are supporting that very strongly, not just here but in Alberta as well. I mean, surely that's a
0: big mistake. It completely, it, it, it's it's a ridiculous policy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, you know, we we want that carbon dioxide in our atmosphere. Uh, hey, and sure. and and we're and and he, the thing is that there's so little of it that that will potentially be sequestered. It, it's not going to make a difference anyway. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. yeah, it, that's oh. another scam. Uh, and, and and it's shocking to me that any thinking person, half knowledgeable about these things, could be advocating that. Yeah,
1: I encourage people to listen to the audible book, and I, you can probably buy it as a hard copy as well. It's by David Kahane, which is his pen name. I'm not sure what his real name is, but it's called Rules for Radical Conservatives. Okay. And it's written from the point of view of a left winger who's telling us conservatives how they fooled us. (laughs) And They say, and it's funny because they say sarcastically, you people are so dumb that I'm going to tell you exactly how we took over your institutions. And one of the things he focuses on is the use of language the self-sabotaging language that the conservatives have started to use. So I really encourage people to listen to that, because if they're going to fight back, they have to know why the institutions were taken over in the first place and how we can use those tools against them. So this is Tom Harris interviewing Joseph Benamy. Joseph was a policy aide to Prime Minister Stephen Harper. And we've been talking about language and the fact that conservatives have got to be more attentive to the language they use, or they're actually supporting the enemy. So, Joseph, thanks so much for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. Okay. Well, this is Tom Harris signing out from the other side of the store. If you're enjoying this episode, we ask that you donate to the International Climate Science Coalition, or ICSC, at icsc-climate.com to help us pay for the show. We get about 50,000 listeners per program, so it's certainly worth continuing. Please visit icsc-climate.com and click on the red Donate button in the upper right-hand corner of the homepage. Once again, that's icsc-climate.com. Help us bring our program, The Other Side of the Story, to thousands more.